Hello, welcome to The Ripple, a podcast diving into closure programs and libraries. This week, I'm talking about continuous integration with Hannah Henderson, a team lead and engineer at CircleCI. Welcome to the show, Hannah. Thank you. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you on. So can you give us a little bit of a background on CircleCI uh, for people who don't know, haven't heard of it before? Sure. Is it safe for me to assume that most folks listening to this have heard of continuous integration and continuous deployment? I'd say most people are probably familiar with the terms. Okay, awesome. So CircleCI is a continuous integration, continuous deployment tool. We're a developer tool and we make it significantly easier for engineers to get their work from their own machine into their master code base and out to their end customer. Great. Uh, and, and what do you do at CircleCI? What's your responsibilities there? I'm a team lead very recently and an engineer for the developer experience team. So we are a team that's focused on improving our customers or the end use developer experience of our product. So figuring out what could be done to really improve their experience of the product. Nice. Uh, So I guess that sort of covers anything that's not UI related that could improve things for people. Yeah. And one of the things that has come up a bit recently is we've grown a fair amount. So we have teams focusing on like the, the core machinery of our product and things like that. This is the first one that's taken the user experience into account outside of the growth team. It's technically we're a full stack team, but this group has evolved quite a bit and I think came out of I happen to work with an awesome product manager who has a very technical engineering background and our whole product team actually is quite strong technically. And they had spent a fair amount of time working with our user experience team, which is also relatively new, to see what we should be putting on our roadmap in future. And it became clear at some point during that process that there are some things that just supporting and improving the core like builders, the core machinery that runs deployment and things like that for our customers' builds, those types of things weren't going to be addressed. When I started at CircleCI, I was actually on our growth team, which we were a lot smaller at the time. There were about 70 people at the company, and we're now at least 170-ish, somewhere in that ballpark. It wow. changes. <laughs> but when I was on the growth team, we actually worked quite closely with the data analytics group looking at user behavior on the website and seeing where they were engaged and where people were sort of dropping off in using our product and trying to identify and resolve pain points there. And this team, to me, the, my current developer experience team, feels like the, the next generation of that. When I first started, we did not have anyone doing UX studies or anything like that. So it was a little bit more bootstrapped and just a lot of people that cared. And now we're a lot of people that care, but that also have a little more backing in terms of being able to research a bit further what what our customers really want. And we're also lucky as a company to be a developer tool because as annoying as developer feedback can be, it's often (laughs) very pointed and specific and helpful which not everyone gets to have for a product. Yeah. So how do you kind of, you know, as you said, developers can be pretty specific in their (laughs) their descriptions of problems they're facing, but, you know, that's not always, they might be good at identifying the problems, but not so much 
the the solutions. So how do you kind of approach getting this? You know, I must I imagine it must be a lot of feedback because CircleCI is used by you know, many developers. Uh, so how do you kind of take all of this data that's coming in and and turn it into something usable? Sure. So some of that is outside of what I have a ton of visibility into. And if you'd like, I can definitely follow up and, and ask a little bit more on that process. We do have an awesome team of support engineers and outreach engineers and are working on growing that department right now. They will report back to engineers when they notice patterns a lot of the time. Sometimes that will surface on our discuss board where one issue will open and a ton of folks will comment <laughs> on that one issue and it, it'll sort of get bumped up. Obviously, anything that's actually a breaking bug of any sort becomes apparent very quickly through support, through Twitter, through friends at other companies that feel personal phone numbers are the best way to reach their <laughs> friends at CircleCI. Um, so, you know, crisis aside, though, we pay a fair amount of attention to the customers. We get a lot of feedback from folks at conferences via email. Our sales department is actually pretty open to suggestions because there are features that folks will not adopt our product until we're able to support. So we're open to a lot of different avenues of input. In engineering, we're shielded from that process on the more engineer level. Um, I think the biggest thing that motivates us on engineering is we all use CircleCI. So the things that are our own pet peeves are ones that we will bump to the top of the product chain as much as is possible. But our product team winds up sort of condensing the other forms of input that we receive and bringing it to us in a more consolidated and beautiful format. Yeah. So one of the things that is a new feature of CircleCI that I've been very pleased to see is the orbs feature. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about what orbs are and what you were trying to achieve when you designed them? For sure. So orbs are composable pieces of configuration. You could think of it like a library of config almost. We're also built out an orb registry. The goal there was sort of twofold. One is CircleCI has received a lot of feedback that our 2.0 configuration is more complicated than our 1.0 configuration, which is sort of a trade-off in that our CircleCI 2.0 product is a lot more powerful and a lot more configurable for our power users but we would still like to be able to support folks that are maybe doing a side project and don't want to learn all of YAML in order to be able to do something. So the first sort of goal of Orbs in that sense was to hope that we could create some better configuration templates for users that don't want to be quite as involved in the nitty gritty YAML. That is a bit of a work in progress still because we don't have a fully fleshed out registry at this point in time. The other end of the spectrum is we have some users that are supporting huge sets of projects and have a lot of repetition across their configuration. They're duplicating things. And as we all know, copy-pasting code is a great way to <laughs> copy-paste errors across thousands of projects. And we wanted to be able to give 
those customers way to share their code with themselves. And on top of that, we do have some customers that would like to be able to help users to configure their product in within the CircleCI config. So orbs give an opportunity for them to recommend a best way in which to do that. Yeah, I'm I'm one of those people who I don't maintain you know hundreds of projects with that use CircleCI, but uh, at day eight we certainly have quite a few applications, uh, some open source libraries as well as internal ones that are all pretty similar. Yeah, you know, we've deliberately made them fairly similar in how we build and test and deploy them, and so you know that copying and pasting the config was certainly getting a little bit old. So Orbs is great when I saw that you know you were creating them. You know, I thought immediately, oh, this is perfect. This is exactly what I had been hoping for. So yeah, I, I think your user research team has done done a good job there. And we love the positive uh, feedback because we do get all the feedback. So positive is nice too. <laughs> and so just going back to the the other people that might want to promote different ways or best practices of working, is that for things like say Kubernetes uh, deployment or Google Cloud or AWS? Is that the sort of things that you would be expecting to see with this? Or Yep, that's exactly what it is. We actually have a, a team that's working on some partner orbs, but we're still, we haven't done our big launch yet. So don't expect those tomorrow, but they're they're in the works. And we consider it a valuable enough contribution to the ecosystem that we're building that we're investing in that area. Great. So uh, CircleCI is probably one of the largest companies, maybe the largest company I know that uses Clojure in a you know a really substantial way. I know there's certainly other large companies that have bits of Clojure, but I don't know of any others that have it as their sort of foundation. So how does that kind of work? Because Clojure, you know, it's a pretty dynamic language. It works well for small projects, but what kind of things need to happen when you're scaling to you know 170 people with closure that's a great question full disclosure i have never developed professionally into language outside of closure so my point of comparison is based largely on explanations i've received from coworkers and peers closure well let me take two steps back when i started here so two years ago our entire code base was in Clojure, including our front end, but it was in Clojure Script. We are transitioning away from using Clojure Script in the front end and switching to having a JavaScript front end. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that we started using Clojure Script because CircleCI was founded by some very passionate backend developers that acknowledged that occasionally they would have to enter the front end <laughs> and felt that so far as legend and lore tell me that Closure script would allow them to do that without having to change their mindset too much from to, to switch gears too much from closure coding, which worked well for a while. The front end tooling ecosystem is really not there for closure script the way it is for languages like JavaScript. So we have had to make a trade off there and and switch to towards JavaScript. In terms of in the back end, I do not know why it was chosen initially. And I know that there are other people that would probably be horrified to hear me say, I don't know the core reason. We have a lot of people that are sort of passionate about closure and code and having a clean 
programming experience in a way that I don't necessarily see other places. And Clojure has been a great language for us to be able to do that because it is governed, created, I don't know how you want to say it, by Rich Hickey, who has such an attention to detail in the whole process. It's not everyone that makes a five-year plan about what each iteration of their language will be. So the language itself and the closure community is one that, in my experience, is incredibly welcoming and incredibly passionate in a way I've not seen for other communities. I did a coding bootcamp two and a half years ago now and learned JavaScript. And that community is so much larger and it's so much more diverse. And I mean that in terms of of skill set, of interest. You know, I think everyone sort of sees a reason to poke at JavaScript at some point if it's just to fix something in their UI or, or for whatever reason, a lot of folks will wind up picking it up, which means that it's great in that it's so flexible. It is a kitchen sink language, so you can do whatever you want, but that means that you will see every form of the kitchen to sink that you thought possible. Enclosure <laughs> <laughs> is a bit tighter community, but one that's that people are very excited about the language in. And they're very, you know, it's like a, I want to say goofy, fun-loving. That seems like a really weak way to describe a programming community, but it's uh, it has a better vibe. I feel so influenced by my California roots right now. I haven't described its authenticity yet, but we'll get there. <laughs> um, yeah, but we as a company benefit from that community. Nice. And being able to tap into that community. Yeah, it is It is a great community. Um, Clojure is the, probably the language I've had Certainly, the most professional experience. I've done a little bit of other other development in, in other languages, but Closure is by far my the one I've had the most experience with. And yeah, I'd, I'd agree that's you know it's a really really neat neat community of people. Is CircleCI adopting Closure Spec or in in the code base in different places? Yes, and it really depends which microservice you're in right now. And we've also started using gRPC between our microservices, which uh-huh. enforces schema quite strictly. Yeah. Which has pros and cons. We had to write a wrapper for closure and gRPC interfacing, which I think is more overhead than we thought it would be, but we're doing it. There are a lot of trade-offs in the long run in terms of having tightly typed <laughs> interface. In the short term, it was definitely a, a learning experience. Yeah, and the GRPC messages that you send, at least the way I've seen it described and how you're meant to design it is to sort of write your messages in a way that they can be backwards compatible and you know old services can read new versions of the messages and stuff. How does that work in practice? Do you kind of just go, uh, flag it, we made a mistake in our design, let's just upgrade both the client and the producer at the same time? Or are you... You know, it always seems like quite a difficult, you know, valuable, but but difficult to design that way. Yeah. So this is actually a conversation we've been having both around our gRPC interfaces and our GraphQL interfaces with the what makes something backwards compatible versus not. Right now, the services that I've worked on that have gRPC are young enough that we haven't needed to take away an endpoint in production. Uh, we've added to them, but adding is easy. (laughs) 
And in gRPC, they, you do number everything in the endpoint. So it's pretty clear if you remove something, it'll be one, two, three, five. <laughs> we don't have a strong policy at this point around what happens if we have to deprecate one of those. We have a very strong understanding that we do not want to break things for our customers. That is something that we hold very dear and it'll be interesting to see what happens when we cross that bridge. <laughs> yeah. We've met with some folks from Walmart and their Walmart labs because uh, Walmart's released Licinia, which we do use, and sort of had a talk, at least on the GraphQL front, about what deprecating looks like. And both groups sort of came to the conclusion of, well, in theory, it's possible, but we're not quite sure how to do this without importing all of the bad practices from REST API into the great new world. So we will see. Yeah. And I guess this, you know, applies also a lot to, to closure spec. Similarly, you know, the, the growing and breaking stuff. And I've always, I can understand the the theory and the philosophy behind that. But the thing that doesn't always seem to get talked about so much is the cost of backwards compatibility. And I guess if, you know, if you're doing something for the entire world to use, um, either as a library or as a service, then you, you've gotten very little control over the the users of that. But but if it's just internally inside a company, the argument for backwards compatibility seems less, at least at you know, smallish scales. Maybe at Google scale when you've got tens of thousands of engineers, uh, again, it becomes no longer possible to, to really do that. But yeah, I, I guess I'm interested to sort of see how people you know, discover this in practice over the next, you know, couple of years. Yeah, one of the things we do have to be aware of since we've shifted towards using microservices is even if something is just internally, if you're not aware of who's consuming your endpoint, there's a chance that you break something that then surfaces externally, uh, which is, I would say, the biggest argument for being cautious around breaking things there <laughs> yeah so i've seen uh, circle ci hires uh people remotely there's a, a san francisco base but it looks like there's people from you know all over america and the rest of the world so how does that work uh, is your team remote uh, how do you kind of deal with working remotely sure so my current team is very remote and distributed right now we cover most of north america europe and Asia in terms of time zones, which has been an adjustment and a challenge for me. When I first joined the company, because it was my first developer job, I really wanted to be on site in San Francisco. You know, I didn't feel I needed my hand to be held or anything, but if you get stuck and you're not sure what you're doing, if there's someone around to get you unstuck, I think especially during that learning phase, it's so valuable. So I had worked predominantly on teams based on the West Coast, maybe not in San Francisco, but certainly within reasonable time zones for me. And I had worked a bit with folks on the East Coast, so three hours time difference, but that's, you know, no big deal. You live the developer life, you sleep in. <laughs> and <laughs> that meant that I, as an early riser, wound up on the same time schedule as many of those folks. Anyhow, I'm very lucky that everyone on my team is awesome. Like, it's a very nice group of people in general. And they put up with my puns, which are regular and 
persistent <laughs> and all the things that you probably wish you didn't have in a teammate that made bad jokes. Anyhow, but they are really spread out. We have two synchronous meetings a week. We have two meetings that are at 6 a.m. for me <gasps> a week. Ooh. And that's 10 p.m. for my teammates in Japan. So to be honest, a 6 a.m. Friday morning meeting is a lot more appealing to me than a 10 p.m. Friday evening meeting, all things considered. Yeah. And that's a struggle. The good news about the West Coast in Japan is that we can meet. Like my Monday afternoon is my teammates' Tuesday morning. So we can have much more reasonable meeting times. And I can meet with folks in Europe up until about like 10 a.m. for me, which is their 7 p.m. So I can do mornings with that team. It's just when we all try to get together that things become a struggle. And so we've started really working on documenting communication, which is good. It forces us to spell things out. I don't know if you've you've heard the thing to assume makes an ass out of you and me. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, it's very true. And it's especially true if you assume something and then someone reads it 10 hours later while you're asleep mm. and can't get a clarification about it. So we are having to be creative in some of our solutions. Like when we spike out a solution, we will write it down in a Google Doc and leave that doc open for folks to comment on. Generally, whoever owns the spike is then sort of responsible for finding a time that they overlap with other teammates if they need one-on-one -on -one conversation about the feedback. We do uh, point cards at CircleCI, so we use Jira and we, we point our work. And my team has started using this tool called Agile Poker, which actually been great, <laughs> um, which I say, having gone through our first meeting where I raised the idea of doing points poker and my one of my sweetest teammates who I've never heard say anything unkind or negative made this sound that I've never heard him make before or after that was an immediate like, okay, so he doesn't want to do agile <laughs> poker. Got it. Got it. Yeah, where I'm going with this is we had some initial resistance to the idea of agile poker, but the tool has been really cool because they have an async mode. So one of the things that came out of our team conversations was that many engineers have, estimating their work aside, many engineers have negative experiences with pointing cards in a group mm. because it is an inefficient process and inefficiency is infuriating. But by doing it asynchronously, we come into our Monday morning meetings having pointed all of our cards most of the time, a mostly perfect system, not always perfect. Uh, but the great thing that's come out of that actually is that everyone then is prepared and has looked at what's in our next up column and has made some sort of mental estimate before the meetings even started about what they think those cards would take. And we're able to have much more focused conversations because we don't have to wait for everyone to come up with an opinion. It's like coming to class, having done your homework. And we do, when we have synchronous time, it is important that we have some of those forcing functions in place to make sure that everyone is ready because it is inconvenient for many folks to have that synchronous time. It's just sort of at awkward times. Yeah, I, my, I've only done agile poker once uh it was on a team with sort of an external uh product manager wasn't sort of part of our 
our team or our company and we would all sort of do our agile poker estimates and he would always be there be the lowest in the in the point uh, and then there would be sort of uh bullying makes it sound like it was aggressive it was more of a cajoling for us to to lower our point estimates which i don't think is actually the point of of those estimates. Uh, so i've certainly not had great experiences with it but i can see how you know if you were in a, a team with a where everyone was on the same page uh you know it, it could be quite valuable especially if you've got a very distributed team where you don't really have the time in that that meeting for like a 10 minute discussion on some some nitty gritty detail that is not that important coming to the table with all the numbers is nice because we can see if we use fibonacci sequence because why reinvent the wheel and if everyone has put ones and twos, we probably don't need to talk too much. If half the team has done ones and half the team has done fives, then that's a great signal that we should spend a little time talking about that task. <laughs> so your background is mechanical engineering. That was what you studied. And so people who mm-hmm. program for a living often are called software engineers. But I think there's definitely a difference in what the kind of work that a software engineer does to what say a mechanical engineer does um, and there's not always maybe as much emphasis on the engineering part of that title and you know in certain companies maybe some are, are really strict into the engineering process so how is your background in engineering and project management sort of shaped how you approach software development yeah that's a great question so my background in mechanical engineering i graduated with a Bachelor's of Science in Mechanical Engineering, and I interned at Lockheed Martin Space Systems Company for two summers. And actually, in a crisis of faith of being a 22-year-old not wanting to work in the defense industry, decided not to work professionally as a mechanical engineer, but instead to work at a real estate investment trust in Manhattan. So I spent the early years of my professional career working for the director of engineering of a company that was the largest owner of commercial real estate in that city. And that meant that I was exposed to a whole different series of processes that I had never expected to see. Taking a step back, I was in the construction and operations department for that company. So we were involved in everything from doing underwriting of large skyscrapers. So I've gotten to go on the roof of all sorts of buildings and into the basements and into elevators that definitely felt like they should have been condemned (laughs) Um, all the way through to maintaining heritage Microsoft Access databases that had far more information stored in them insecurely than probably should have been put there in the first place. To um, I was there during Hurricane Sandy and I can write. (laughs) I am fairly good at writing and wound up getting pulled into writing at an executive level. So I wound up working on a lot of the investors conference presentations, which is almost a more salesy view of engineering. So in that role, as one does right out of university, if that's the path you've chosen to take, I had no idea what I was doing and got exposed to a lot of different things. But throughout that entire time, the thing that stayed with me from mechanical engineering is that engineering is so focused on 
figure out what the smallest thing that you can do is to solve the problem, like chip off that piece and do that thing and then chip off the next piece. And it's, it's a whole mindset that is geared towards figuring out what you can do to start solving the problem. And yes, ideally you'll have a full plan, but if you don't, it's figuring out how to get far enough into solving something to be able to, to find the thread that pulls the knot loose or whatever appropriate analogy I can insert here. And that was really useful for me. Also, it, engineering sort of teaches you not to be afraid of problems. Like, it always makes me sad when people tell me that they're bad at math because I don't think that anyone's bad at math. They maybe had a teacher that did them a disservice at one point in time, but you learn how to tackle things. And there are absolutely times where I try to tackle something and I don't think I can do it and I just want to throw my hands up in the air and possibly scream and throw my computer out the window because that would feel great, but then, then it would be bad. And engineering gives you a framework to fall back on. That was a long rant no, by me, was... the end. No, so I guess you're able to then sort of take that into your approach with problem solving in, in your team with a team at CircleCI um, and sort of how you structure or analyze the problems. Yes. And also, I will never think that I have as much process in my life as I did in that last role. So. Uh, right. So Jaira is is a... <laughs> pleasant for you. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned uh, that you uh, did a coding boot camp before you started at Circle CI. You've also written a little bit online about this. Uh, you know, it's, it's a really good description of kind of your your thought processes about wanting to. You know, do you want to do this? Is this a good idea? So, sort of coming out of that, what's what's your experience uh, two years later? Like you've sort of found a job. Uh, what would you say about coding boot camps now? I don't think that my advice has changed appreciably from from what I've written, but to kind of summarize it, I think that coding boot camps are a great way to learn a lot in a short period of time with a supportive structure in place. I am a little bit cynical about boot camps. They are for profit, they're unregulated definitely do your research if you want to go to one. They're incentivized to make sure you get a job or the good ones are. So definitely look at how transparent they are in their placement rates. And I felt that joining a group that had similar goals to my own, namely having me work as a software engineer was a a, a good thing to do. But it is, I mean, it's scary to upend a career. I was a project manager at the time I left my last job. And there were some things I didn't think about. Like I was a manager and I was about to go back to a school that's definitely not going to give you cachet in your life and then re-enter the workforce and be junior again, which I mean, I'm still relatively young, but like <laughs> I'm now in my late twenties and many of my, my peers are, are managers or have, are further along in life. Um, which isn't bad, but it's not a thing I thought about when I entered the program. And on a meta level, it's a thing that surprised me. On the other hand, I have been so much happier working at Circle CI and in the engineering industry and have met so many incredible people. Like I would not go back and change having gone to the boot camp. I think part of my cynicism is I 
lived in a hacker house in San Francisco while I was attending the boot camp. And the hacker house had folks from other boot camps as well. It wasn't just the one I was in. And I left a good job. I have a solid degree. There were people that I saw that were risking a lot more than I was and weren't being supported, didn't have a backup plan. And and some of them failed. And that was hard to watch. So definitely do it. <laughs> but but be sure that you you um have considered have considered the pros and cons and, and what happens if you fail or what, what you'd be willing to trade off. It's been a great experience for me, but I guess I see so many sort of snake oil salesman things about it online that I wind up sounding very negative when I talk about it in person because I feel like I have to counteract some of that sales pitch. But it was a good experience for me and I would encourage anyone to certainly look into it. Sure. Yeah, that's that's really great feedback. I don't think I yeah, I, I generally only see the the sales pitches very much less often you actually hear from the people who go through them. So that's a good perspective. So is there anything else you'd like to plug before we, we finish up? I'd love to plug that Circle CI is hiring and that orbs are great and should totally be used. But I believe we're doing an official launch for folks on November 7th. And we're aiming for a more polished user experience early next year. Right now, I think anyone that's comfortable with YAML or considers themselves a power user or someone that's just interested in poking around should be just fine in our orb docs, but they have not gone through the full beautification process. (laughs) Yeah. And so CircleCI is hiring uh, remote closure people as well as on-site? Oh, is this my plug right now? I should sound more enthusiastic. Uh, Yes. So CircleCI, pretty much any engineering role is remote. In fact, I don't know of any engineering roles that aren't remote. Check out our website. We have an up-to-date list. It looks like, because I'm looking at it right now, we're looking for some staff backend engineers, a senior application security engineer, and an engineering manager. And we also just opened up an office in Japan. We're not hiring for engineers there right now, but we're looking for a lot of um, like customer success type folks. And I will say for CircleCI, we certainly much to the chagrin of everyone that manages support treat our support engineering group like our hiring pipeline for engineering (laughs) not always but often because you know the people that support our customers often i mean they need to be to have a strong technical background or understanding or you know willingness to pick things apart and then they get to know our product really well and then we need to hire people in engineering and it's a, it's a very natural fit from time to time. Yeah. I can imagine. Great. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing the full announcement of orbs and hopefully I, I saw a preview of circle CI's new front end on the blog a little while ago. So I'm eagerly awaiting that as well. Thanks very much for, for coming on and uh, talking with me. Thanks for inviting me. It was great to chat. Yeah. See you later. Bye.